0: And you have heard me make the case for supporting us every way that I, that I can. I've talked about everything that we have done in the past year that I feel makes us worth your support. I, I've talked about everything we wanna do if we get your support. I've talked about the greater role of journalism in society and why it needs to be supported. I've thrown everything I can at you. And if you're still hearing this right now, there's a good chance that none of that worked. And what that means is that probably nothing I can tell you about us is going to win you over and make you a, a paying listener of this show. And yet you're still listening. You still show up to the podcast. I guess the last thing I want to tell you before we move on, we have one more crowdfunding episode of Candle and coming up on Thursday, and then I won't talk about this for a year. But if you're one of those people who keeps showing up to this podcast without supporting it, If I am a part of your life, if my voice is one that you hear as a part of your routine, but you are not supporting us, I still want you here. That's what I want to tell you. I still want you as a listener, even if I can't have you as a supporter. And so I'm not going to bore you with more stuff about us and why we're worth it. What I want to tell you as we wrap up isn't about us. I want to talk about you. It's not about what you can give us. It's about what I can provide to you because I don't want this experience of listening to this podcast that wants your support, but that you're not giving. I don't want that experience to be awkward and weird for you. And I've said this before, but I'm going to say this again. The analogy that comes to mind is it's kind of like you are a guest at a dinner party and you didn't bring a bottle of wine. Everybody still wants you at the dinner party. We invited you to the dinner party. We don't care about the wine. I mean, it's nice to get wine. You need to have wine at a dinner party, but you know, if you forgot to bring wine or you know, if you can't afford wine, we still want you at the party. It's cool. Come, have a good time, pull up a seat. We want you in the conversation. But the second time you come to that same dinner party, the third time without a bottle of wine, you know, or a beer or two or whatever, It's not so much that we notice that you're empty handed again. I mean, we do, but it's more about how that makes you feel, you know, like you are very conscious that you are the guest who didn't bring anything to that party. You're not contributing anything to make the party better. And that makes the party less pleasurable and enjoyable for you. I want you to feel good about listening to Canada land and commons and oppo and Wag the Doug, and Thunder Bay, and everything else that we're making. I want you to feel welcome and good. You are welcome. I just don't want it to be awkward for you. So it costs very little to remove that sense of of, of awkwardness and anxiety from the listening experience. I mean, that can be accomplished. I mean, sure, we'd love to have you for $5 a month, which means that you won't hear messages like this or advertising. But if a dollar a month is comfortable for you, whatever is comfortable for you, I want this for you. Please just do it now. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaLand. It's not a big deal. And you'll feel better about this whole thing. Thank you. It is a journalist's duty to avoid harming the people whose stories they are trying to tell. A journalist has power, responsibility, and must be held accountable when fueling stereotypes in their reporting. Newsrooms and editors are equally responsible for the content they publish. Those are the words of the Native American Journalists Association in their public denunciation of a New York Times article about the Inuit community of Cape Dorset Nunavut. The article was written by Catherine Porter, the Canada bureau chief of the New York Times. It ran last month under the headline, Drawn from Poverty, Art Was Supposed to Save Canada's Inuit. It hasn't. The Native American Journalists Association, NAJA, described the article as follows. Porter's story sets out to explain how Cape Dorset, a tiny island below the Arctic Circle, churns out so many artists and uses Inuk artist Ulusi Sela to weave a story laced with cliches. It hits on alcohol, poverty, drugs, sexual assault, unemployment, addiction, violence, suicide, poor education, domestic abuse, teenage pregnancy, and welfare. Some sources who shared their stories expressed concerns online, including one woman who says she was left feeling gutted, wishing she had never let Porter into her house. Now, Catherine Porter, who who you've heard interviewed on this show before, she did not directly respond to our requests for an interview. And she has yet to respond to any of the public criticism her work has faced from NAJA or from elsewhere. Instead, she passed our request on to the director of communications for the New York Times, who sent us the following statement. We have welcomed the Native American Journalist Association's offer to meet with the New York Times on the article or any other issue, and in fact have already spoken with them on these issues since the publication of the story. Our correspondent Catherine Porter spent weeks in Cape Dorset for the specific purpose of finding out and understanding what life is like for the people there. The issues that we recount came up repeatedly in the lives of the people we interviewed and profiled. They were frequently raised by members of the Cape Dorset community as significant, persistent challenges they wanted solved. The article also includes positives about Cape Dorset, the significant successes of the co-op that is a hub in the community, the local culture of sharing, and the artistic achievements of the people in the story. We look forward to continuing the conversation on these important topics with Nadja. So, the New York Times stands by their story, and they say that it is an accurate account of the people Catherine Porter interviewed in the North. But one of the people Porter spoke to was not included in the resulting article. And that's the woman who was referenced in that earlier Native American Journalist Association's denunciation. The source who opened her home to Catherine Porter, who shared her story, and who was left feeling gutted by the final Published article. That woman is Inuk documentary filmmaker Alethea Arnakuk Baril, who joins me from her home in Akaluit in a minute. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Jonathan Moore, Elise Chenier, Thomas Wilson, Michael Boyle, Craig Fisher, Ryan Shepard, Gabrielle Given, and Kara Brudeau.
1: My name is Cara Bredow, who lives in Toronto, Ontario, but grew up on Prince Edward Island. I'm an electrical apprentice who is a proud IBW member, and I support Canada Land, and all the other fantastic podcasts, such as Oppo, Commons, and Thunder Bay, because I was starving for Canadian content and was so happy and entertained when I started listening to Jesse and his rants and his views on our media and our country. I really look forward to Jesse figuring out what it truly means to be Canadian because I know he thinks it has nothing to do with his cup of coffee in the morning from Tim Hortons.
0: This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, It's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems... And just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Alethea, you wrote on Twitter that you had welcomed Catherine Porter, the New York Times reporter, into your house. Can you talk about that meeting and and how you first met her and what that was like?
1: Yeah. uh, Catherine reached out to me, I guess, over a year ago now. She texted, called, emailed, (laughs) I think Facebook message. I can't remember exactly, but in multiple ways, she tried to meet up with me the first time she came and for some reason I didn't, like I was traveling or maybe just not interested in talking to another journalist that I didn't know. I get a lot of messages from journalists, so I may have just ignored her the first time. But the second time she came, I figured while well, she's back, she's still trying hard to get a hold of me. And it turned out she knew someone that I went to school with many years ago, so I felt like I guess I'll give her a shot. And uh, so she came over to my house for dinner.
0: From that dinner, what did you take to be her objective in her reporting?
1: It's interesting to think back about that dinner where Catherine came to my house because... I mean, it was over a year ago. I have a terrible memory at best. (laughs) I didn't really get a sense of what she was trying to cover. I I felt like she was coming up in a very exploratory way. She didn't really know what to write about at all. And she was just looking for people who live here and kind of know what's going on. And I'm involved in a number of different things, both through my work as a filmmaker, but also just as someone who's involved in my community on a number of issues. So I guess I gave for a sense of what my view is of my community at this time, like the kind of sweeping trends or movements I'm seeing at home. And I, right now, I feel like there's a lot of activity happening with a new generation of leaders here in the North, both elected and also just, you know, community leaders, where Inuit are working hard to take control of our own affairs. You know, we had a number of amazing Inuit leaders who fought for our land claims agreement and negotiated those things with the federal government. But now we're in a a phase where we have to exercise the right to govern that they fought so hard to, to get back. And I'm seeing this happen around me, Inuit taking over institutions and boards and positions within government and also outside. I gave specific examples such as you know the Iqaluit Museum. The board was all white for a very long time, or all non-Inuit anyway. And now the chair of that organization is an Inuk Kurdist. And I also cited the example of the Higertani Inuit Association, our regional Inuit association here where I live, negotiating a huge and important conservation area with the federal government that was announced not that long ago, but I told her about it as it was being worked on and that she should try to talk to the Inuit org about what they're working on because it's really interesting. They're doing really interesting and creative things to create economies here that are not rooted in resource extraction and that help Inuit fulfill the role of being guardians of, of our surroundings while also building economies on doing that. So I just think it's fascinating stuff that's happening. I gave her so many <laughs> really interesting ideas for stories. I pitched one about um, a friend who's trying to find a way to hold the priest who sexually abused his father and, and a number of prominent Inuit leaders while they were in residential school how he's living free in France and Canada and France can't get it together with their extradition treaties to, to hold him accountable. I told her so many stories of things that are happening here that I don't have time to make films about them all. <laughs> Kills me. And, and so just the thought of somebody with the platform that she has doing a story and some of those things was really exciting to me. So when I saw the piece come out, I was truly stunned I wasn't stunned that a piece like this could be written because I've seen it before many, many times. I've seen so many outsiders come in and leave and tell tragic stories with no context that are just really frustrating. So I'm not surprised that the piece exists. I'm just surprised that it exists, even though the the author visited with me and I told her at length about all the amazing things that are happening here. It's It's so tone deaf <laughs> and, I'm just amazed that you can be that ignorant even when someone has kind of held your hand and given you a, a an intellectual tour of the state of things here. I'm just it feels willful at this point that she wrote it in that way. Not just ignorant, but willful.
0: Did you have any indication as you told her all these things over the course of hours that she would go the way that she did with it? Or did she seem receptive to the hand-holding that you were (laughs) graciously providing?
1: (laughs) You know, it's bizarre because, I mean, I'm a terrible judge of character. My husband will tell you that. He and I often have completely different um, first takes on people. And invariably, he's right. He's got a great gut instinct. I tend to trust everybody and think the best of everybody until way too late. (laughs) And when the piece came out, I read it and I was fuming, and then I remembered that it was the woman who visited me. It did. I I didn't realize it right away. I just read it, saw the name, and thought it looked familiar, and thought it, maybe I read something by her before. And then I looked back through my emails and and saw one from her actually recently saying the piece finally came out. I can't wait for you to read it. And I didn't I didn't see that email. Like I saw the piece first. And I realized it was the woman who had vi- visited me and it all, all the memory came flooding back and I was horrified. And, and I showed the article to my husband and he said, oh, I'm not surprised. She seemed to focus when you said anything about anything negative. Uh-huh. And I said, really? I don't remember that. He, he said, yeah, anytime you made any little mention of a social issue, she seemed to perk up.
0: I've read a lot of response from different people and I've had conversation on the show about it and I've read what the Native American Journalists Association has to say about it. I don't want to make any assumptions about what fault you found with it and why you were gutted by it. Maybe that's something you could describe for us.
1: Well, it's poverty porn. It's trauma porn. I guess I've spent so much time fighting that both by just making my own work that isn't that, but also confronting other writers and filmmakers about their work and I think I've probably spent too much of my own time trying to trying to fight portrayals like this. I should really just stop doing that and put my head down and just make my own work and let let that stuff fall away. But it's just so hard when it's on a platform like the New York Times. It's so huge. So many people see it. And it just feels like it undoes so much of the work I'm trying to do with with my films. It's just like wow how, how do you travel to the north and have an interest in writing about it and pay so little attention to what's previously been done I keep feeling like we're past this phase now with Canada 150 and the next 150 and like the all the talk about reconciliation and and just I just keep feeling like we're making progress and then something like this goes and punches me in the gut
0: it's a sad story because not just that you've thought the best of her, but that you you have a keen awareness as, as a journalist yourself and a documentary filmmaker about the dynamics at play here. There's a lot of sources who have no idea what they're getting into and they sit down with the journalist. And it seems like you took a leap of faith against some reservations because it's harder to find fault with a piece when you refused to participate. And that's what we're always telling people is if if you're afraid that you're not going to like our, our coverage, talk to us
1: mm-hmm.
0: so that we can have a more full picture of things. And we do ask for that trust. It's terrible to hear from a source who who takes that leap of faith and feels burned by it. I wonder, you know, I hear re- some regret and you saying that if you had known, you would not have have welcomed her in that way. Has this changed your posture and your perspective about visiting journalists, because the fact that you spoke with her in the first place indicates to me that you're not against an outsider coming into your community and trying to tell a story that that in theory, there is a way that that could have been okay.
1: I talk to journalists all the time, but I I try to pay attention to the little red flags and go with my gut. And in this instance, it just failed me. usually when someone physically comes up here more than once, they've overcome those initial hurdles of of like the most basic most obvious most tired old stereotypes that she so so utterly failed to realize have been told over and over again it took me a long time to understand why people like telling those stereotypes over and over again and and you know i've i've i spent an enormous amount of time confronting these issues and these stereotypes with a a, a terrible documentary that was made a a few years ago, which I won't name because I don't want to bring any more light to that filmmaker. Mm -hmm. But at some point I realized the whole, you know, the whole, I learned the terms trauma porn and and poverty porn. And now it just makes sense to me. It, It, it allows people to feel like they're really good people because they feel empathy. They feel pity for someone who is less fortunate than them. And it allows them to feel good about feeling bad for us. I can just picture these people at dinners with wine and cheese, just tisking over the shame of the situation, how we should really be doing more for these people. You know, they get to perform their empathy for their fellow privileged friends So it's really not about us. It's about them being able to show how empathetic they are, what good people they are. So there's a weird, really morbid pleasure that people take in just talking about how pitiful we are as as Inuit, how pitiful our situations are, how poor we are, what kind of trauma there is here. And it's just such a weird way to find pleasure in life but it's shockingly common because it's a lot easier to do that than it is to look at the actual historical reasons for the state of things here, not just historical, Mm -hmm. but the present day oppression that is going on in Northern communities. It's way less comfortable for someone like Catherine to confront the reasons, the root causes of those things, because she and and everyone in southern Canada is complicit in our oppression. The rest of Canada benefits from the oppression of Inuit. So it, it's it's a much less comfortable conversation for someone like Catherine to have, and for her readership to to learn about.
0: Can you tell me more about that that benefit that you're talking about?
1: We have an enormous landmass. Canada has something like thirty percent of the world's uh, freshwater resources, and an enormous amount of that is in Nunavut, the sovereignty over the North alone brings Canada and the United States security with the distant early warning system being implemented across the North in the 1950s. I could go on and on. Mm -hmm. The number of people who live here very temporarily make outrageous salaries, pay off their student loans and then move away having climbed the corporate or, or government ladder while they were here and go, go down south and take all of that money that they made and, and spend it elsewhere without investing in our communities. You know, the ruling class here in Nunavut is is white. It's certainly non-Inuk and it's mostly white. And in a territory where 85% of the population is Inuit, that's outrageous. I mean, the colonization happened for us very recently, more recently than it did for many Southern First Nations. You know, Inuit weren't forced into communities away from their traditional family camps until the 1950s, 60s and 70s. The last strongholds were in the 80s, the outpost camps that moved into towns. So, you know, it's, it's very recent. And it was done so that Inuit could be considered Canadians and therefore helps the the government claim sovereignty over the Arctic for national security, as well as all the resources. And, I mean, still, like Baffinland Iron Mine is trying to expand their operations in this region right now as we speak. And they're trying to sneak through higher quantities being exported without going through the proper assessments and approvals but exporting more from Baffin land iron mine would mean more ships coming through, which affects the animals, the whale calving grounds, the walrus calving grounds and all that, the communities that live around there and, and eat off of those lands. So there's, you know, it's not just the the sovereignty and, and defense security for Canada and the United States that comes from here, but it, it's also tangible things like iron and gold and diamonds and all that. So And the South, I mean, the the vast majority of the Canadian population lives within 100 kilometers of the borders. And certainly not all the resources are coming from that thin strip of land. So yes, the majority of settlers in Canada absolutely benefit from the oppression of of the people who live in the areas where all this extraction is happening and aren't seeing the the benefits. We are not reaping
0: the rewards. I appreciate you taking me through that. I, I, I should know more about that than I do, but I don't, (laughs) so I appreciate the the labor of that. Mm -hmm. To return to this question of of representation, it's what your work is directly engaged with, and I I, I can't help but see some thematic links here. Your film, Angry Inuk, deals with um, kind of similar dynamics of, of, I guess, well-intentioned people who feel like they're doing something really virtuous and calling for the end to, to, to the seal hunt and trying to create, and just the invisibility of actual human beings involved in this, of Inuit, and trying to bridge that gap through representation. I want to talk with you about that, but I also just feel like, you know, you brought up something earlier about just how this is the New York Times, the disparity of platform. You make a critically acclaimed documentary for the NFB. It was seen by a lot of people. It's not the New York Times. This podcast is certainly not... That the New York Times, the power that is wielded there, I think that some people everyone can relate to not wanting something negative written about you in the New York Times. Nobody wants that, mm-hmm. but the harm that's done is something that i'm not sure people fully understand so so there was an article that you don't like you know it, it didn 't tell the story of of empowerment and self determination that you were suggesting it told a different story of other things that that uh, that you object to what's the big deal what's the harm? I think that's worth um trying to explore a little bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, the platform is insane. The New York Times. I mean, I don't know what the readership of the New York times is, but it's huge and it's way more people than will ever see my documentary. That's why I've said, I felt so gutted by this article because I can talk till I'm blue in the face. But if, if I only get a certain size of audience, she can just undo my life's work with the stroke of a pen and she has that platform to do that. It's It just kills me. So, you know, when I talk to the media, I'm basically spending my entire two minutes of airtime saying we're not all drunks. And that is a damaging mm-hmm. stereotype. Did you know that Indigenous people are actually less likely, likely to be drinkers than non-Indigenous peoples in this country? And then, you know, the news clip is over. You know, often when we complain about negative pieces like this that give no context to why we're in the state we're in. We often get comments back from people saying, but isn't it good to shed light on the dark and doesn't it stimulate conversation so you can answer the things that, that they're saying. And I have to say it really doesn't because I, I spend the entire conversation just trying to undo stereotypes rather than talking about the really interesting things that are happening here. And I'm just so ready to move past saying, I'm not a drunk. I have more to say than that. And when pieces like this are put out, that's the position that it puts us in.
0: This has been going on for such a long time. You make feature-length documentaries. I was taught in my university documentary class that the first documentary ever was a film called Nanook of the North by uh, Robert Flaherty in 1922. Yeah. And so these issues of representation are are like literally at the birth of this medium was this film that I think is still celebrated in in many respects, but it's a film that we know is filled with outright fraud.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's known as the first feature-length documentary ever made. Some people contest that because so much of it was written and directed and, and acted out at the request of Robert Flaherty. I mean, he was asking the Inuit there to only use the animal skin clothing and only hunt with harpoons and and, and that kind of stuff and not use the rifles that Inuit had already been using for, I don't know, 100 years by that point maybe, decades at, at least anyway. So from the get-go, we've been portrayed as behind the times you know, I think even from that very first film ever made about Inuit, people from the outside would have seen it and thought, wow, they're hunting and they don't even use guns, you know? Mm-hmm. So from the very beginning, we've been portrayed as backward or, you know, less modern, which is hilarious because we pride ourselves on being adaptable. It's, it's how we've survived for millennia in the Arctic the second you show an inuk something that's cooler, smarter, more efficient. Um I guarantee you it's ad- it's adopted so quickly. People, you know, we're really unromantic <laughs> about uh about things when there's a smarter way to do something, we'll switch. Yeah. It just so happens that there are lots of traditional skills and lots of traditional knowledge that is still the smartest way to do things. So yes, and 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 we've also been forcibly separated from a lot of our knowledge you know the way traditional knowledge is taught so of course right now we have a big fascination with the past and how things were done in the past because we need to relearn all of that and reassess what's smart for now what makes sense for now um, and these decisions were taken away from us um, throughout the 50s and 60s through to today and so we're of course, we're we're in a phase in our society where we're looking back through history, but we're always looking forward as well. Um, we always have been. We've always been a very adaptable people, and and uh, if we weren't, we wouldn't have survived in the Arctic for so long. So it it just extra burns (laughs) yeah. when I see us being portrayed as, you know, fundamentalist or traditionalist or behind the times because, I mean, the second cell service is available in communities. We had elders with cell phones uploading their hunting photos to Facebook, even though they didn't speak a word of English.
0: It's actually a much more interesting story.
1: It's a weird habit of the South to portray the North as old school (laughs) because we're not.
0: Just reading up on on the production of Nanook of the North, uh, I was kind of taken aback by how familiar the dynamics are. He he was welcomed, Flaherty, in producing this. In fact, he had the full participation and collaboration of Inuit, who were his film crew. Some of them mm-hmm. knew technically his camera better than he did. Mm-hmm. But it was this idea of like, I'm going to show you how I want you to look, because I, I know my audience, and mm-hmm. they don't want to see you with rifles. They want to see you looking traditional. And some of the same dynamics around that this was, I think in his mind and in a lot of his audience, a glorification of the subject, that he was humanizing them by kind of asserting his conceptions onto them. But meanwhile, there's still scenes where he's played up for laughs, where he, he, Nanook, and that's not actually his name, Mm -hmm. encounters technology and is baffled by it and tries to like bite a record player. We see Nanook with his wives. And in fact, these are the common law wives of Flaherty. (laughs) that he cast as Nanook's wives. So all of these like exploitation and false representation and, and disguising it as, as some sort of service or some sort of compassion and also burning the people who help you when you're up there. Mm-hmm. It, like, mm-hmm. it, it all just feels like, you know, it's almost a hundred years ago, but it's the same.
1: Reading through the comments on the New York times almost upset me as much or even more than the article itself. And it's the reason I was upset with the article because I know what comes out of articles like that. Like I, I know what people will think and what they will say. I know it by heart because I've seen it over and over and over again. And because I spend um, a lot of time because of my work, both in film and in advocacy, I spend my, a lot of time on social media. So I know exactly how, how many, reactions we're going to get from settler Canadians saying things like, you know, you have to get with the modern times or you'll fall away. It's just evolution. It's, you know, these kinds of ignorant comments, reading through the comments just kills me. But I do it to educate myself about what happens when you tell stories in this way. And I just find it so... Irresponsible to present a narrative where basically we fall apart without the help of outsiders. You know, this notion that we should help these people is basically saying we need to be saved, that we just self destruct unless we're helped, unless we have our hands held by rich white ladies from the South. It's so damaging because it takes the responsibility and the history away, the responsibility of the South, of settler Canadians, of what they did to us and what they are doing to us. Our state of trauma right now, Mm -hmm. the dysfunction that exists in our communities, isn't because nobody's saved us. It's because people have come here to try to save us. And the way Catherine told the story makes it seem like Canada's role in our destruction has been a passive one, and it wasn't. It was active. Canada sent its worst pedophiles, took them out of their churches in the South, knowing they're pedophiles, and sent them to remote Indigenous communities across the country, including the North, including Cape Dorset, where this story takes place. I mean, that's active destruction, Taking children out of their their family homes from as young as four and five years old and not sending them home for over a decade, that is destruction. Bringing kids, even when they weren't sent off to residential school in the federal day school system, telling them that they'd have their mouth washed out with soap for speaking our language, that is not passive. That is active destruction. And when she tells a story like we should really be helping these people and presents it like we fall apart without help, it's absolving herself and mm-hmm. her family and her community. It's washing it all away as if as if Canada did not play a role and in, in putting our communities into the state that they're in. Which, by the way, are not as bad as she painted. Yes, we have trauma. Yes, there's addiction here, yes, there's family violence, but it's not all bad all the time, the way she, she portrayed it. Those things exist in our communities. They're very real. And I spend a lot of my own personal time trying to work on these issues. So I'm not saying they don't exist. But her portrayal is just sad upon sad upon sad. And it was really unfair to the artist that she was supposedly trying to celebrate in this piece.
0: I just want to uh, finally ask you how this has changed, if if it has your feelings about your own work as a storyteller, as a, as, a, as a teller of true stories, of other people's stories. Flaherty, in defending his work, because his work was controversial within his lifetime, the director of Nanook of the North, he said something that kind of shot out at me. I guess maybe I was struck by how much I related to it. He said, one often has to distort a thing in order to catch its true spirit. Mm-hmm. That feels like a confession, and yet I, I mm-hmm. kind of know what he means. I, I, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that.
1: I agree with that. I mean, I don't know about distorting. Distorting is kind of a strong word. Yeah. But I, as an artist and as a storyteller, and and just hearing that statement in isolation, <laughs> I don't disagree with it. Sometimes you have to exaggerate one thing, or or not really exaggerate, because with documentary, it's more like you're choosing what you decide to film. You're choosing how to edit something, like. Editing has such a strong impact on, on how a story is told. You could take the exact same footage with 10 different filmmakers and editors and come up with completely different stories. Sure. So the idea of impartiality when it comes to the form of documentaries is, is kind of not a real thing. And even within journalism, I mean, of course, the objective is to be as impartial as possible, but the reality is everyone comes from a perspective. And the media has been very, very much um, a male and white-dominated field in North America for a long time. And people have come to think of that as as normal and unbiased, but it's not. It is absolutely biased. Everyone comes with their own biases. So everything is slanted in one way or another, and you choose to portray things in a way that feels truthful and, and right to you. And that's why it's so important to have different perspectives in media because when it's it's been white men telling our stories for so so long no wonder it's been the same damn story being told
0: over and over again about us Alethea, thank you so much for chatting with me today
1: thanks for giving me more than two minutes of airtime to say i'm not a drunk
0: (laughs) quick update to this story after we recorded our interview with Alethea APTN News reported a detailed response to the New York Times article from the subject of that story, Inuk artist Ulusi Sela. Sela rebuked the New York Times on a number of points. When she heard that the Times has claimed that she had approved of the article about her before it was published, Ulusi Selah said that this was not true, that she has yet to be sent a copy of the article. Ulusi Sela took issue with her depiction in the article as someone impoverished. I'm not poor, she told APTN. I didn't say anything about poverty. Sayla told APTN that Catherine Porter had told her that she was trying to help her by writing about her, and that by participating in the New York Times story, her artwork would sell faster. Sayla said that this has not happened. Looking back on her experience participating in the New York Times story, Alusi Sela said, I learned a lot what i say and what not to say hey that's your canada land episode and uh, if you liked it this is the time to support us at patreon.com/canadaland you can email me at, at Show.com. i read everything that you send We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. The website is CanadaLandShow.com. There's a new episode of Wag the Doug that came out last week. There is an episode of Common's incredible series Dynasties up this week. There's a new Oppo. We have fantastic podcasts for you at our website or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is produced by Jordan Cornish. Kasia Mihailovich is our senior producer, and our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria visit them online at cfuv.ca bring a bottle to our dinner party get ad-free versions of our podcasts go to patreon.com/canadaland